G'day. Osha here. Thanks for downloading the show. It's episode 377 of the show. This is a podcast I've been making since 2013, and uh, there's a, a few people that help me make this, and they are professional, talented, wonderful humans that I like to pay because the kind of work they do is the kind of work that people shouldn't do for free because they're very good at it. So I'd like you to help me pay Andy and Rachel by um, I'm about to play an ad, or I might not play an ad. depends on where you listen and what the algorithm says, but you might hear an ad. Now, if you hear an ad, you're helping me pay Andy and Rachel. If you don't hear an ad, all good. We'll get straight into Craig Rewcastle. Let's hit it. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. One of the things that's fascinating to watch at the moment is what happens when the market changes. So, for instance, right now, it's much cheaper to use renewable energy in Australia. Far cheaper. So that debate is over. If you're just doing it on an economic basis, that's what's going to happen. What's funny is to see those people who previously were like, well, we don't want to have wind power and solar because it's more expensive than coal and gas. What's ridiculous is those people who say we're economic rationalists now say, no, 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 we need to use government money to build a coal-fired power station or we need to have a gas-fueled economy with the money from the government. That is absolutely ridiculous and hypocritical when even the money is stacking up in favour of the environmental option and you're arguing the other way. That is not only idiocy, that is evil. That is author, producer, and activist Craig Rucastle. And this is episode 377 of Better Than Yesterday. Hello and welcome to Better Than Yesterday. I'm Osher Ginsberg. Thank you for being here. This is episode 377 of the show today with Craig Rucastle. You know him. He's one of the chaser. He also made a TV show called The Checkout, War on Waste, Fight for Planet A. He is a fantastic human being. 
and uh, he's written a book about Fight for Planet A and I can't wait to get this conversation into your ears because it's very, very, very good. Thanks for all the feedback about Dr. Carmel Harrington's episode. Send off your email at gmail.com. That episode about sleep really helped a lot of people. Uh, helped me, goodness me. Uh, so if you slide on back, you'll find it there. And also thanks to those who sent me feedback about the writing as mental health podcasts uh, that I'm doing on Fridays at the moment. It seems to be resonating with a lot of people. So I'm really grateful that you're enjoying those. Send off your email at gmail.com is where you can find me. Now, Craig Rucastle's new book is called Fight for Planet A. It's uh, really, really powerful, powerful documentary. He's written a book about it. And if conversations about climate change and and listening to people who are not ignoring it and people who are taking it very seriously and are trying very hard to use the systems that we have in place to make a change, if those sorts of conversations are your bag, you would be very interested in episode 361 of this show with Zali Stegel. She is the uh, former world champion skier and Olympic medalist, Zali Stegel. She is also the independent member for Warringa in New South Wales and her climate change bill is uh, currently in front of the House of Parliament uh, and you can get in touch with your local MP and support that with them. Climateactnow.com.au is her website and um, here's just a little taste of that conversation with Zali. Climate policies and debate have been so divisive in Australia for the last 10 years. My predecessor was certainly a big part in why they were so divisive. He played that for personal advantage and really against the greater good of the country. So we really need to focus now on bringing everybody together. So my approach, having done a lot of mediation as a lawyer, is you've got to get everyone in the room and you've got to talk about what do we all have in common? What do we agree on? Before we all debate what we disagree on, what can we agree on? You know, Do we agree on a safer future? Do we agree on the, on the basic principles that there are impacts that we need to deal with? Some people are more receptive to the facts than others. But what I find comforting is over 80% of Australians accept that this is a major challenge that we need to deal with. So I think everyone has to grow up and deal with it. So that is episode 361 of the show with Zali Stegel. You can find out more about uh, that Climate Act bill at climateactnow.com.au or zalistegel.com.au and get in touch with your MP and let them know. So let me tell you about my guest today. Craig Rucastle is an incredibly talented Australian. He is, I think we first came to know him on the as a part of the Chaser. He then went on to be a part of the Chaser's War on Everything, Chaser's War on Waste, The Checkout, and of course, Fight for Planet A. He's written a book based upon the TV series Fight for Planet A, and he's on the show today to talk about how we might be able to protect the world for future generations of Australians. He's a fantastic comedian and the book is brilliant because I think if you're trying to change someone's mind, if you're getting to laugh at the same time as proposing something they otherwise might not understand, the chances that that will get into their brain and subvert their instant filter of, no, I don't believe that, goes away. And so comedy is a hugely important part of climate communication, which is why Craig's work is just so powerful. He's absolutely brilliant. Craig is um, freaking fantastic, honestly. And, and you'll hear me talk about how, how grateful I am for him and the, the way that the Chaser work because they are really influential in my life. And, and I'll, go, I'll go into that. Without the Chaser, there would be probably, there'd be no book that I wrote. There would have been no live shows that just wouldn't have happened. So 
through a course of action set in motion by the chaser, I was able to put a book out. Um, but I'll get into that with Craig. The new book is called Fight for Planet A. It's out where you get your books. Um, you can also still watch Fight for Planet A and all Craig's work on ABC iView if you are in Australia. If not, you'd need to use a VPN, but I don't know anything about that. You can find Craig on Instagram. He's C Rucastle, the letter C R E U C A S E L. He's also very, very active on Twitter, Craig Rucastle. Craig Rucastle, C R A I G R E U C A S E L. The book is called Fight for Planet A. Get amongst it. Enjoy it. Ladies and gentlemen, Craig Rucastle. So happy to see you. No, good to see you. I'm really grateful that you're doing this, mainly because if I get Julian, then I've collected the whole set. <laughs> That's great to hear. That's very So I've got Chaz and Dom have already been on the show. <laughs> I'm very have you, you have not had Chris and then Chris or Andrew? They've got a new show coming up, so you can get them after that. <laughs> oh man, there's a lot. It's too many of us, man. It's ridiculous. No, look, I'm I'm fascinated because I never really figured this out. I realised it later in life that it's the collaborative kind of amorphous blob that moves forward that creates great careers you know it's not the person mm. on their own who lives and you know people will hire me because i'm good at what i do no it's sometimes it's mm. the you know the singer who happens to have amazing songwriters and management that you know i just never saw yeah, that i never yeah. understood it and i even remember watching the first the cnn and then and then earliest days of what you guys were doing it's going the fuck where these guys come from they figured that out it's interesting is it it, it, it's funny how, like, now, because I, you know, I'm collaborating with lots of different people, and every time you collaborate with a different person, you learn a new thing. Like, it's great to, you know, we always set that up at the beginning of the chase that we didn't only have to work with ourselves, you know, so it's really, yeah, it's great. You always learn something new. And the other thing I, I, I adore about what you do is that you have kind of built a pipeline of writing and producing and presenting talent as you've gone and I don't know where I would be without the Giant Dwarf Theatre, that place through meeting Dom who then introduced me to Zoe Norton Lodge. Yes, and you did Story Club. And I've done Story Club many times and it was the Story Club story that I told that got me my book deal and it was then working with Zoe on helping me direct the live show. Like so I'm – so grateful that you started doing what you're doing because it changed my life. Look, look, you know, I think it's really it's good to encourage younger people to come through, young talented people. As long as they don't end up taking your jobs, you know, that's the that's the risk. You know, we've got to take. Uh, you know, <laughs> look, I don't, it's going to happen know. soon. I don't know, you know though, because they're much more talented and nicer. And ah, oh, goddamn it, we'll have to crush them at some point. Part, part of me is like, I want you to take my job. I want you to get so good at this. <laughs> no, that, exactly. No, because that means I've done. A great thing, you know. No, no, exactly. I love, I love. I was, um, I was working with those guys last week, actually, Zoe and Ben and a few others, and they're just so great, so much energy, so many ideas, and fantastic. So yeah, love it. Because it's impossible to understand when you work with Ben Jenkins. Worked on the first season of Mars Singer with us, as well, and I remember being in the room with him, and he's God, he had to have been ten years younger than the next person 
in his department. <laughs> like the f- this is what happens when you give people permission to be excellent. When you just say, oh, no, no, yeah. you go write it. No, you're now a writer. Go, do it. You don't have to yeah. wait until you've created something. Someone just tells you, you're a writer, and then you go, oh, I'm a writer now. Okay. <laughs> and it's that's right. amazing to, to be around. Well, that's the same thing that uh, Denton did for us, really, was Denton came in and was the kind of older person that just said, I like what you guys are doing. Do you want to take to the next level? I'll kind of protect you. He he would say, uh, he's, he's specifically from the contract, I'll I'll protect you from inessential dickheads, non-essential dickheads, <laughs> so, which was what he did, and it's, it was great. Yeah, that's I'll a, protect a, you from non-essential dickheads, and that's what's, what's what everyone really wants in the early parts exactly. of their career. You need the permission to fail, and you don't need someone from above going, yeah, I don't know. Oh, renovation shows yeah. are really good right now. Have you considered a segment <laughs> that involves renovation? <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yes. But you've got to get away from. I, I'm in Sydney right now. Are you in Sydney? I am in Sydney, yes. All right, which I do believe is a very long way from where you were born, Craig. It's true, yes. I was born in South Africa. I've had a few South Africans on this show and I'm... We're everywhere. But I'm interested as to, because you're quite young when you left, but apartheid well and truly still in the thick of it. How old were you when you realised something was up? I'd say I didn't personally realise I was kind of three when we left, but it did very much inform our leaving. So my parents were uh, definitely not in favour of apartheid. They thought it was appalling. Part of the reason we left, you know, was that they didn't like the... There was compulsory military service in South Africa, and I don't think they liked the idea of their kids growing up and then having to kind of fight for something they didn't particularly agree with and believe in. And that was one of the reasons that I think fed into the kind of leaving South Africa. Interestingly enough, and I always look back at this as kind of, I wonder what their thoughts were. I don't think they regret leaving, but they did leave with the belief that it wouldn't change. And actually around the time when I was turning 18 was when uh, Mandela was coming to power and apartheid was crumbling. And it was interesting to go, you're going to go, well, it would have been really a fascinating place to be in at that time. And, you know, the change did come, which is, was amazing. So, yeah, yeah. It's, so the, the, call, the call was that it wasn't going to change. I mean, not that obviously, you know, we weren't the ones who were uh, screwed over by the system, but it was not a system that they believed was particularly healthy. In Australia, it would be very hard to understand that. I mean, I benefit from a system rigged to benefit me, even though mm. I enjoy the system that I live in. It's rigged to benefit me and there's other people in my community that do not benefit from the system because I'm a white, male, middle-class, straight person. Could you kind of maybe explain a little bit about how people might be able to get their head around like, well, hang on, you're benefiting from. Things are okay for you. Why would you want to leave? Well, absolutely. I mean, it was in the country where the best jobs tended to be given to those who were from the white minority. I was looking at this the other day. I think it was about just probably under 20%. It's interesting because the South African system, as opposed to a lot of other inequality in the world, which is kind of underlying and is not recognised, the thing about the South African system is just blatant. You said you don't get the vote. The majority of the people in the country didn't even get the vote. They didn't get the jobs. They didn't get to use the same transport systems. You know, It was just absolute segregation and separation. And, yeah, I mean, I don't think that that's a great 
it's in, it's, I don't think it's a great environment to grow up in. And, and you say that why would you leave a system where you're benefiting? But the kind of country you grow up in, even if you're in the majority, affects you. So I remember that my parents would always be, you know, talking to friends back in South Africa when we'd moved here. And, they'd, you know, the friends would be, well, oh, where's what are Craig and Garth doing, my brother? And they'd be like, oh, they're out in Mount Gibraltar, you know, they're just roaming around in the bush or whatever. And they were shocked beyond belief because they wouldn't let their kids out of their yard. They had eight-foot walls with glass on top of it. And even if you are in a great job and getting the money and that, that is not a lifestyle that I think is a great place to grow up in. And also, to be honest, like growing up in a place that has that that level of inequality around, I think, oh, God, I just, I'm very thankful we didn't grow up in that. Although in some ways it would have been a fascinating you know, somebody who's really interested in politics would have been fascinating to grow up in that kind of country. I always, I always have that kind of sliding doors fear of going. Would I have grown up and been this really racist asshole <laughs> if I'd grown up there? You know, I don't know. What what gigs were your parents in? Uh, engineering. My father's an engineer, and my mother's a social worker. Right, so yeah. systems and, and uh, compassion. Okay, so <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can see why they were like, yeah, we can't do this. Dads are like, look, I've done the numbers. It doesn't work out well. And your mum's like, my heart dies every day I wake up here. <laughs> We're going to have to go. Yeah. Which would have broken their hearts to leave all their friends and oh, family. Oh, absolutely. Well, exactly. It was, I think, an extraordinarily hard decision. And I look back and go, you know, I've never had to make such a fundamentally hard decision for my kids, you know, to leave. They left their family there and that particularly was hard at a time when you couldn't travel back easily necessarily. It's not like they would go back every year or could afford to do that. And, you know, phone calls were expensive back then. There was no there was no Zoom calls or yeah. Skype or that kind of thing. So they felt very separated from their family and uh, you know, I think it's a tough thing to do. How do you think growing up with... I mean, you've got teenage kids of your own. You know, surely you can see how the way that you live your life influences your kids, even though they may not want to show you that it does. Um, how do you think that having parents that were able to make that call and had the the moral compass to make that call, how do you think that affected or influenced or informed the work that you've gone on to do? It's interesting that, yeah, because... It's not like my family wasn't like an overly political family, you know. That's not to say we wouldn't discuss politics, but it was never, I never felt the sense of anything being forced upon me or any beliefs being forced upon me. And I think it, you're right that it's probably just as kind of that slow thing of certain principles or certain beliefs or whatever just slowly kind of rub off on you as you grow up. So, yeah, I think they had more effect than I would like to say. Well, you know, again, that's, I'm not saying that I was particularly political. I mean, I wasn't massively environmental either in some ways. I was, I was always interested in politics. I've been interested in politics from quite a youngish age. But, yeah, I don't know. It's interesting to look back on that. I don't know where you know, they had more influence than I'd like to admit. <laughs> I, I can't remember when I was interested in, in politics. I remember growing up on the Bjelke-Peterson 
in Queensland. Mm. Interestingly, apartheid was based on Queensland's racial separation laws. Yes. Which is <laughs> fucked up. A lot of people don't know that. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, there are still things about Australia that you're very embarrassed by, like when you see America or Britain kind of going, well, how do we become really harsh on refugees? I know what we'll do. We'll base it on the Australian approach. You go, oh, how great. But that's how we're seen in the world. That's the example we give. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's, but I, I didn't really think about politics until 99, the referendum on the Constitution. So I can't, I was 24, 25, I didn't really care to that point. When did you remember the first time you went, oh, there's a, oh, I can participate in this? I don't have a memory of participation as such. It's interesting you say that. I'm, I'm literally doing a documentary about democracy at the moment and the the idea of participation is probably the coming through is the most interesting part of it about, you know, the need to participate. But I don't necessarily feel a need to participate or I don't remember participating, but I was definitely interested in it from definitely in my high school years and I kind of got involved in debating and was, you know, I, it's more nowadays when I think back and I remember certain things of, you know, I don't know, the hawk era or something and I think that's really weird, like, Strange that I remember something about that because that means I was very young at the time. So you know, I was a strange nerd, obviously. I I, I do. <laughs> I, I'm not going to lie. When you talk about the hawk here, I kind of do miss. It wasn't a circus. It was, and it wasn't quite wrestling. But there was something performative about watching Keating that I kind of mm. miss. I, I kind of miss that he had. Uh, he wasn't as slimy in Question Time as you see now. Like you see people like oh, it's like private school boys just talking to impress each other now. Yeah, look, look there were differences to me. There were some impressive things back in, in, in past politics. It's actually, can I admit, bizarrely enough, even some of the things that Howard did, you think in hindsight, you know, had some impressive elements to them, like, you know, fighting for gun control or something. Oh, that blows my mind still. <laughs> Exactly. It still grows my mind too. And what I find interesting is is whether you, you know, you can presume that, oh, the people have changed now, different people. I'm always more interested in the question of whether the system has changed, whether, the, you know, the influence of media or 24-hour news cycle or the influence of money in politics, which was one of the negative things that Howard changed, for instance, have they changed the way the system works so that we won't see the same broad changes made or the same long-term thinking or or the same interesting, you know, debaters or whatever. So, yeah, that's what always worries me. Have we moved on from that? Can we have those leaders again? I think they're important and there's something I think about the other system, the other part of the system that's changed and you've met them, I've met them, everyone's met them, people who lead workforces of thousands and thousands of people that run some of the biggest companies in our country that are incredible leaders with amazing moral compasses that do huge amounts for the community, but they're probably way better for the job than the people who are currently sitting in parliament, but they're like, oh, there's no fucking way I'm subjecting me or my family to what that job requires. I'm not going to do oh, it. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. No I mean, I've just been um, reading slash listening to Obama's biography and to just hear you know, to, to hear Michelle talking about the decisions or to hear him talking about Michelle pushing back against so many of these decisions because of what it would do to the family. And, and similarly, I have, I actually have, for all these years of chasing politicians around, I have an actual respect for them. Like, they work really hard. They actually talk to far more people from different backgrounds than most of us would. 
by the nature of their job. Some of them are quite closed off, but a lot of them actually are quite incredible people struggling in a really difficult system. So, and I agree, you know, the choice about going to go into politics. I get a lot of people come to me going, Greg, you've got, you've got to get into politics. I'm like, yeah, you say that now, but six months into that process, you'd fucking hate me. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot easier to be on the outside, chipping in. As someone who was a debating champion in university, you champion might be going too far. I debated. <laughs> you, deba- you you were you participated in debating championships. You were in um you know, you participated in what's called a mooting competition, which is you know pretend mm. trials. Um, and you were very very good at debate. You're very very good at you know convincing people of an argument that way. That's very hard to do on television. So how did you get from? Geez, I'm really good with my words to. We're going to have to do a stunt because that's the only way to get this over the line in less than a minute. <laughs> How did you start to get to there? Well, it was all accidental. Like, that's all accidental. You know, we started when we were at university, a few of us, like Charles Firth and that did, we did like university newspapers and Dom and that. And so we, Charles was the one who was like, let's start a, you know, basically a satirical newspaper that will sell, you know, never really sold. It was a crazy idea. But we started the chaser, and and from that, interestingly enough, the the stunts, the reason we did stunts is it is an interesting story, actually, because in the paper, there was a page where we would kind of interact with real people by by sending them. In those days, we'd send them faxes, right? We sent a fax, for instance, to John Singleton. He at the time started a, a supposedly historical newspaper called The Eye, which existed for a certain amount of time and then just fell away. So we sent him a smart-ass letter, you know, we faxed him going, you know, what a waste of money. You should have given the money to us. We would have done a lot better job than the I, you know. And he, to his credit, responded like months later and sent us a check for like 12 grand or something, which at the time we were university students running satirical newspaper. We'd never seen so much money in our life. And we spent it on a printer so we could actually run the newspaper. But there was this part of the paper where we'd kind of send these things and interact with public. So when Denton comes along and says, I think you guys should do a TV show, and we start doing the pre-production on the first kind of election chaser show, he's like, you know, I really like the way you guys do that interacting. So you've got to now, you know, we've got to do that in the show. Now, there's a very big difference between sending a fax <laughs> and having to, you know, if it's on TV, you have to go up to people and you have to be rude to their face if you were being a smart-ass beforehand. So that's where that initially kind of came from. And it petrified the hell out of us. Like it was really frightening to do when we first did it. It's a lot easier to do um, the other way. But the the visual storytelling that you were able to do, particularly when I think about War on Waste, some of the, the visual representations of just the mountains of junk, the soft plastic one I, I remember particularly, the way that that was informed by everything beforehand. You know, you don't accidentally come up with something like that but to create such a powerful powerful image so quickly well look, let me firstly give credit where credit's due so war and waste was that there was a british format so some of those ideas came from the british format some of them we kind of created for the australian because this is different things different countries the different issues and that so it was interesting because hugh fernley wittenstall who did the war and waste in the uk would did kind of stunty things but in a very different way like he's just you know, he was a celebrity chef who started doing this stuff. And then so when we were asked, to, when I was asked to do it, it was like funny because here's a show that's got stunts. People will think that 
I don't, but the stunts were very different. And when we kind of would put, we kind of gave it a more Australian twist on it and kind of gave it more of that chaser sensibility. But it was funny going, oh, weird, this celebrity chef's out there kind of trying to do stunts, <laughs> which is strange. That, that was a, a really impactful show that you did. The storytelling there, I feel, just from talking to people that I know, and you know, people listening may not realise this, but some of your best friends vote Conservative, okay? Yes, they do. <laughs> and they really couldn't give a fuck about the things that you may be listening to this show for. But that show touched people all through the community. Why do you think it cut through? Yeah, it was fascinating. And, let me, I mean, it was really surprising. I mean, I thought it was going to be a pretty niche show, to be honest, because it was a show about waste and me trawling through bins. And it was the opposite. It was like one of the biggest shows the ABC had at the time. And it was really surprising. I, I was shocked the way I was surprised by how change occurred after that, right? So I came from studying politics at university. So I came from this kind of government perspective of you change the laws, right? So the reason I'd be chasing politicians would be like, you know, because they're the ones who can change this. You know, they've got to change the law and then all, all will flow from that. Some of the biggest impacts from the show came from the other parts, which were where we were like, let's tell people what they can do themselves. And what surprised me is how many people responded that way. Like I'd have people come to me on the streets constantly going, oh, I'm going to show you the picture of my being. We've, we've got nothing yet. Or we do this recycling. My kids are into it. And they hassle me all the time. And interestingly enough, that then led to, it's like the people doing that and then becoming passionate about it themselves led to the kind of, pressure being put on the politicians so the politicians actually changed not because of the top-down thing they actually changed because of the bottom-up pressure and i did have politicians after that saying to me you got to realize we don't lead we follow it's like okay yeah if they see something happening in the community they see this pressure and reality happening they feel more like they've got to change and i often think about that in the climate space that you see this polling that says 80 percent of australians are concerned about climate change and want to see change. But if politicians then see the population saying, oh, but I don't want to change that, or I wouldn't give up that or whatever, if they see that in actual fact there's not a real, if they see that, that there's not a kind of follow-through from people on that, I wonder if they kind of think, oh, we'll get away with this a bit easier. Yeah. I, I think that's the thing is the, I heard once, um, Nimto, not in my term of office. It's the opposite of uh, NIMBY, not in my backyard. Not in my term of office. Don't worry about it. It's not. That's a great idea. It's not for me. Well, that's the big problem with climate change. I mean, it's like it's it's so hard to, for the political cycle, you're talking about things that are going to impact in 10, 15, 20 years. So right now the impacts we're seeing now are the effect of the actions of 20 years ago or 50 years ago. And you go... It's so hard to get our political cycle and our political class to interact on that level because it's totally not in their term of office. Yet, but we make gigantic infrastructure investments based upon projected population growth. For example, <laughs> yesterday I, I drove back in from Western Sydney and I, I was spoiled for choice with tunnels I could have taken like, this is hundreds of millions of dollars worth of infrastructure that they're going, well, it's not at a capacity now, but in 20 years it will be. It's like, that is true, but <laughs> is, it, is that because the contracts uh, go out during the term of office for oh, those right. particular things? I do think about that. Whenever I drove over the, 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 the Harbour Bridge, 
I go, can you imagine the foresight in 1920s or whatever to build this goddamn enormous bridge with all these lanes of traffic when you, you know, like, what, you had three horse-drawn carts at the time? Like, it's extraordinary that you go, can you imagine doing that now? Like, when we build the M5, we went, we'll just build two lanes each way and we've got this possibility of adding a third or maybe a fourth lane. You just go, you knew that you were going to need more of those lanes then. You didn't do it. So it is, yeah, I, I do worry about that long-term decision-making and whether or not we can make that now. Well, I think that's a part of the systemic issue that you were discussing earlier. I always had the idea of, we were talking about big companies before, you know, there are big companies that part of your pay packet is shares, but those shares have are vested and they have cliffs and you get those shares allocated to you five years, mm. seven years, 15 years after you start. So I always yeah. wondered, like, what if you gave the politician, like, yeah, we'll give you your pay and your pension, but it'll pay out in full in 20 years if the things that you said yeah. come true, which is what makes a CEO of a big company go, well, I'd better make this good for longevity and good for mm. my you know, CSR and good for everything because yeah. I want to be able to retire so they're investing, realising that they won't be CEO then, but this decision will impact them in their lives 20 years from mm. now. Whereas in these re- tiny little terms of office we have here, three years or whatever, like, why the fuck? You wouldn't care. Mm. You're going to be out on the speaker circuit, you know, or you'll just go and get a job in the mining industry or whatever the fuck through the yeah, Fabo revolving exactly. door that we have. Yeah, the old revolving door. The golden staircase, they call the it. The golden well, staircase. Yeah. I think it's a golden escalator. It goes both ways. Yeah, exactly. After war, I should ask you, like, at what point, was it during war and waste that you started to get involved in the climate? When did you first became concerned no, about climate? So, interestingly enough, I was actually more active on the climate stuff before war and waste. Yeah. So actually Fight for Planet A is partly based off stuff I was trying to do in my own life before that. So I was interested in environmental stuff. I've been interested in environmental stuff for a long time. Not to say I'm, I wouldn't call myself an environmentalist, but it's definitely been something that's been a concern. And climate's been something I've had an interest in for a long time. When did you, when did you start? When did you realise, oh, oh, shit? I don't, I don't have a moment. I don't think of a moment that's, you know, like, but I certainly think that, yeah, like we're talking about back in pre-rud days and that when you're going, fuck, why are we doing nothing about this? This is ridiculous. Yeah. And then finally seeing something been done during the Gillard years and then seeing that just being trashed stroke of a pen afterwards. I mean, how bloody depressing was that? But I think I never would have thought of myself as somebody who would be communicating that space because I just didn't think, you know, I thought that's the job of an environmentalist. I'm I'm doing political satire, I'm doing this kind of stuff. You know, we would touch on climate issues, but I didn't think it would be something that I could really communicate about. So what War and Waste was interesting about was that I came to that with somebody who cared about, you know, I was always somebody who was passionate about recycling and all that kind of stuff, but I didn't come to it as an expert. So I was kind of going on the same journey as the audience, which I think, to be honest, helped quite a lot. You know, I was learning the stuff as the audience was as well, going, shit. We need to solve this problem. Is there a way to find the solution? And often the answer was bang your head against the wall or you can't necessarily find one. But you, there were solutions out there. You know, there were things that you could change. And I found that in my own life you made changes that were, you know, great. You felt so good about. So the Fight for Planet A was actually the reason I wanted to do that and go to climate was that I started to see little hints in Australia that war and waste had been successful, but in a way that was almost like there was too much focus on waste. So you people would be asked, what do you do about climate? They go, well, I don't get 
plastic shopping bags when I go to Coles. It's like, that's great. That's a great waste issue. It's got an impact. It's really important. But that's not really the crucial climate thing. And I started to see the government itself, like you saw Scott Morrison going to the United Nations and talking about when everyone else is talking about climate, he's talking about plastic waste. And plastic waste, again, really important problem, but you can't use it as a bloody excuse. You've got to be able to walk and chew gum on this. We cannot, you know, there's no use cleaning up the oceans while we just have climate change, you know. You know, it's like, hey, it's great the way this really clean ocean is coming up and lapping on my doorstep. Uh, so I just thought, you know, it was important to kind of talk about climate stuff as well. I, I want to do another war on waste at some point, but, I, you know, I thought, we had to kind of also recognise that there's some different things about climate. Think you're going to hear an ad? You might just hear an ad. We'll be back with the show in just a moment, you know. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There was the ad. Now we're getting back to the show. Besides the kind of deliberate misinformation and muddying of the waters and doubt, basically just you talk, doubt. You're talking about my show? No, <laughs> talking about climate. What's the thing that most people don't quite get about climate change? Look, it's really hard. It's, it's so much harder to understand your role in it and, and the effects of it, right? So it's the thing about waste, right, is when you talk about it, you see it. You you have that daily interaction with it. It sits in your kitchen. You see that thing there. You put it out in your bin. It's that really tangible feeling and seeing it. You can see it. You can see that plastic in the ocean. You can see that turtle with a straw in its nose. There's a really tangible sense of that. In the mind, there's kind of two steps involved with climate. There's like, oh, hang on a second. So I use this electricity that uses this coal, and that then does something that leads to the earth hotting up. Like it's just that, you know, it's more steps that you can't see, that you can't actually interact with. So I think it's a lot harder. And we spent a lot of time in Fight for Planet A with, with uh, Jody and the rest of the team just trying to kind of really visualise the impacts and visualise it because it's, it is harder. It's way harder to understand it. It's such a big problem. Do you think our brains kind of shut down once we start to realise how big it is and it's just too hard and we can't actually conceive it? Yeah, like there's, you know, I looked a lot at kind of psychology of climate change stuff before doing it. And there's a really hard line there because you need to be able to communicate to people the size of the problem. But if it gets to a certain point where people think, oh, it's just too big a problem, I can't deal with it, they shut off and they psychologically shut down to it. And interestingly, I mean, I think actually in terms of climate, 
I, I was thinking about this the other day. Um, I was writing the, the book Fight for Planet A, and I was thinking about waste and climate. And I actually think in many ways we have more solutions for climate than we have for some of the waste problems we have. Like I'm more confident that in 2050 we could have solved a lot of the problems of climate change than I am that we will have solved, for instance, plastic in the oceans at the moment based on the information we have. There are a lot of positive things there. There are a lot of solutions there. So whilst seeing a lot of frustrating things in the climate space, I'm also sometimes quite optimistic about it as well. As you were researching uh, Fight for Planet A and as, as you're working on a show like this, like what did you learn about speaking with people who have, shall we say, watched a lot of just one particular window of opinion on the climate space through, shall we say, one particular news organisation that has a particular <laughs> way of speaking about it? Yeah. It, it's interesting. I, I, one of the we've all got I that think, uncle. We've all got that uncle. We've yeah, all got, we've all you got know. that uncle. Exactly. And one of the things I think is important is that I think that you can sometimes get, and I see this happen with scientists online, where they spend a lot of time arguing with the one dude who's the climate denier. And I think I, I'm always kind of in two minds about the the success of, you know, how useful that is. And I guess it is useful because you don't want that person's view just getting more and more attention without any kind of rebuttal. But when it comes to actually change, I don't think it's worth us going and having an argument with the climate denier, really. You know, there's only really 5%, 10%, actually I think it's about 8% is the kind of stats in Australia of people who are in that kind of full climate denial mode. I think it's more important to focus on the large majority of people who are aware it's a problem and want to see change but don't necessarily know what to do about it or don't necessarily think that they can, for instance, become active about it or talk to a politician about it. And to be honest, talk to a politician... No matter which side you're on, like, you know, you spoke to Matt Keane recently and it's great to hear the kind of climate stuff being put in the language of the Liberal Party because around most of the countries in the world, this is not a political issue. Australia is one of the few countries where that is the case and that has poisoned the debate here. But, you know, don't go and argue with the total climate denier who's, don't go and talk to Craig Kelly's Facebook group about it. That's probably wasting your time. Talk to your friends who are the next step along or, you know, are probably not quite as far along as you. And talk to them and try and get them to be more active about it. That's going to have a lot more impact, I think. So I'm always very aware of those arguments that are used and I try to address them, but I don't do it in a way of arguing with them just because I do it in more of a way of correcting misinformation. And that can be hard to do because, yeah, as you mentioned, the psychology of it, people can get quite married and I almost identify as part of their personal identity around this kind of stuff. And therefore, if you challenge something that they believe is true, it's like a personal attack and they react as if they've mm. been called a fucking asshole. <laughs> and that can be really confronting. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And to be honest, I... Like I really toss up the, like for instance, you know, in Fight for Planet A, I kind of chased Scott Morrison with a lot of black balloons on my back to represent, you know, the carbon dioxide of an Australian person every hour and to talk to him about what he was doing. You know, and the fact that he then did a runner and his bolted and the security got onto me, you know, in my mind that's an entertaining scene and it's a great representation of our approach, which is running from the problem. But there's another part of me that goes, that does this then make it seem like it's politicised and make people who go, but I vote Liberal and think, oh, this is a Liberal Labour issue, which it just isn't, you know. Yeah, I'm wary of that kind of stuff. And 
I'm sure I screw up on a particular approach at times. Well, atmosphere doesn't give a shit who you vote for. And if any, if any people love investment properties by the water, it's liberal <laughs> voters. I know. It's, it's very funny. Look, like, you know, you, it's just a joke with Turnbull. Like, you know, maybe we should make all liberal leaders have a waterfront property. They'd be much more active about this. There's, there's a great example of also a guy, Frank Luntz, who's a, a Republican Party kind of spin doctor that worked for George Bush and that. And he famously was one of the people that did a lot of the analysis of, you know, how to spin climate change. Like he said, you know, call it climate change, not global warming, because people think it's, you know, less threatening. And he was doing all this kind of spin. And then, of course, the fires in California came and nearly burnt down his house. And now he's converted. And now he's like, he's one of the ones Republicans, you know, in favour of stopping climate change. And I'm just like, do we really have to bring a fucking fire to the doorstop of every climate denial to change this debate? Are you that selfish? You can't understand, you know, oh God, it's just, it, it actually is that, it's a weird thing of empathy. And I, again, you know, not to be political about it, but Scott Morrison talking about it, I spoke to Jen and she made me think, what if it was your daughters? And like, have we really lost the capacity for empathy to that extent that we can't imagine in other people's shoes? We can't imagine the damage for other people. Like it has to be seen through our own prism. Like, I don't know, just, you know, yeah, anyway. I'd, I'd say that's, Again, Craig, that's a part of the systemic issue that we're dealing with. You're asking a voting yeah. public who have, through the the miracle of the depersonalization of comment sections of Facebook inter- groups <laughs> and tw- Twitter responses and Instagram responses, it's not a human on the other end of that. And it's completely depersonalizing mm. everything else. So unless it's yeah. me or the people I can see in my room, I don't know how to imagine what it is it's just another person coming here to take what i've got i I think you're right you're right and that's what scares me the most at the moment in terms of the trends we see is that polarization and and the way facebook and social media reinforces that polarization into kind of cliques where you only see your own view being reinforced and then the others become the other they're the other side i mean that that's the thing that worries me the most And, and on both sides right and left to be honest Right now, my Twitter feed, the part that worries me the most are people on the left who are like screaming at journalists and ABC journalists, like, why did you ask them that question? And they're the same people. They're the same people who are like, Sky News is an outrage. It's just this right-wing thing. And then you go, if you look at the rest of your feed, what you're basically saying, Sky News is outrageous because it's this political crap journalism, Sky News after dark. But then they're kind of the rest of the journalism almost as if, why isn't the ABC a left-wing Sky News? You're just going, I just, you know, it drives me nuts. That's also a part of the empathy, I think. The empathy problem doesn't only exist on on the right. I think the empathy problem also exists on on the left. Mm. And that's what I was talking about before. Like some of your best friends vote liberal, they just don't tell you, all right? Mm. And trying Mm. to have empathy that, yeah, not everybody holds your values and that's okay. Yeah. You know, some people feel yeah. differently about franking credits and that's that's fine. That's what they <laughs> that's their thing. And that doesn't make them a bad they still love their children as much as you do. They still want their kids to get fed. They still want their kids to go to school. You know? And Yeah, exactly. They just want their kids to grow with franking credits. Beautiful thing. <laughs> we can pass we can leave them in wills, can't we? We can pass them on. Surely. <laughs> I should rewrite my will. I love the fact that you used that example. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It that was one of the things in 
I was being asked this the other day, like, going, but, you know, the last election was going to be the climate election. He's going, yeah, but elections are such a blunt tool to analyse people's perspectives because it was also the negative gearing and the franking credits election and the death taxes election, which was a lie that wasn't even real. And it was also the Bill Shorten was the leader and most people didn't really like him, including on the Labor side. You know, it was, it was all of these factors in. It's really hard to go, let's take this as a barometer on one issue. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't work. When it comes to, you mentioned before that there was a an upward pressure that war on waste tended to put upon the systems. You know, please let that upward pressure bring curbside soft plastic recycling to my suburb because some in this country <laughs> have it, but I cannot fucking believe the amount of soft plastic that we collect. A great friend of mine, I went to school with her, um, business school with her, a marine biologist, Ayana Elizabeth Johnson. She opens her TED Talk every single piece of plastic ever manufactured is still in existence. Mm. That's her first line. Yeah. And it will be for another thousand years. Like if that doesn't terrify the shit out of you, you know, and so I look, that rings in my ears every time I scrunch up my tofu packet and put it in the (laughs) thing. It's like, I'm going to take that to Coles and what, then it's going to sit in a warehouse somewhere in Victoria because we can't take it to China now? Fuck. No, well, then it gets gets remade in Australia, in Ballarat actually. It replays. Oh, now it does? Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. Interestingly, it's one of the things about TV that's annoying is that you can't correct it later. So can't update when it. things change. So yeah. when Woolworths in Warren Waste, when we caught them sending the soft plastic overseas. Oh, the GPS thing was fucking golden, man. That was, was fucking good. <laughs> they then changed their method and uh, reprocessed it in Australia. And I often get people on Twitter kind of going, oh, you know, uh, look, I don't. There, okay, there are problems with that system. Occasionally, it doesn't work. I'm not saying that all every bit of it, but it is generally quite a good system. And you know, it's the hard thing again about being able to communicate greys in today's society. Yeah. It's been able to go, hey guys, sometimes people stuff this up, but overall, it's better. You know what I mean? It's like, uh, people, if you don't give it in black and whites, well, half the audience take the white, half the audience take the black, and they run different directions with it. Well, that, that still, that was a that was a pretty powerful example of how just one, whatever was it, eight-minute segment or 10-minute segment can change the behaviours of one of the biggest companies in the country that half of the country rely on for their food supply. That's a big fucking deal. So that's that bottom pressure you were discussing earlier. When it comes to climate, what's some bottom-up pressure that we, because we can only vote once every couple of years, what's some, what's some bottom-up pressure that we can place upon the, the market, upon the, the politicians around climate? Let's start without the politicians for a second, because there are things you can do. And it's interesting. You think about politics is a, is a zero-sum game, right? So 49% of us in Australia vote for climate change. Let's just say, hypothetically, to sit, dumb it down. Let's take out franking credits briefly. 49% want change in climate change, and they vote that way, and they lose out. Zero-sum game, change isn't going to happen. 49% of Australians actually are quite active in their own lives on climate change will actually make quite a big difference. So, for instance, if 49% of Australians pay the extra few cents to have green power, and green power, what happens with green power is that your electricity company has to purchase basically more renewable energy to the extent that you have energy. So, basically, have to buy more. There's this whole certificate. It's very boring behind the scenes. But it's not that they can just say, oh, we've already got the solar panel here. We'll give it to, you know, Osha because he's the greenie who buys our power. Osha pays for green power. They have to basically make sure that more green energy occurs to actually create that. If 49% of Australians did that, that would fundamentally put pressure on getting rid of coal. And, you know, you can do that in many ways. You can also campaign and you can also put pressure on government, which is something you should do. 
but that's something that people can actually do. People in Australia, the individual choices of Australians changing to solar panels, most of them probably not doing that for an environmental reason. Most people probably doing it for a financial reason. That has had a massive effect. It's now like over 2.4 million households have it. The energy created by those individual houses in Australia is more energy than all of the coal-fired power stations in New South Wales. Those small actions have actually had an impact. So you can actually do things in your own life that have an impact. Now, I'm not saying it's our responsibility. That's a really crucial thing. It's not our responsibility to change it, but you can have an impact. At the same time, you're trying to pressure for politicians to have an impact. And I also think it has a flow-on effect of putting more pressure on them. I've got mates that are active, you know, straight up, they've got university degrees up the wazoo. When they book a flight, I'm not paying the fucking green fare. Fuck that. The company <laughs> should do that. That's not it's on me. It's a dollar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but that, on know, principle, exactly. they're like, that's not on me. If they want to run a fucking business that puts carbon in the atmosphere, they should pay for it. It shouldn't be on me. Yeah. Well, I agree that the company should be doing it, but I do, if the company isn't doing it, I do do it myself. And I think, but again, it's that thing of going, they'd say that. Do they then say the kind of, at the office meeting, do they say, hey, guys, why does this company not offset our flights? You know, Why do we not do that? You know, I think it's just they're also asking those questions as well. Do you think that, like, clearly capitalism and the pursuit of the dollar and the ignoring of the externalities of that profit have got us into this mess? And in the absence of your incredible political documentary coming out and changing the political system and creating an entirely <laughs> new system, capitalism is like the only system we've got right now. Do you feel that we're going to have to use the system of capitalism to get us back out of this problem? Look, it, it's interesting because you see a fascinating uh, argument occur in the environmental movement, which is that you have basically those that say to solve climate change, we have to get rid of capitalism first. And you have others who are going, we need to change it so that capitalism does it. I'm probably on the side that, if you're going, we've got to solve this massive problem, but we need to, to solve that massive problem, we have to solve another even bigger problem first, is probably not going to be the most successful approach. It's interesting as well that, that one of the things that's fascinating to watch at the moment is what happens when the market changes. So, for instance, right now, it's much cheaper to use renewable energy in Australia. Far cheaper. So that debate is over. If you're just doing it on an economic basis, that's what's going to happen. What's funny is to see those people who previously were like, well, we don't want to have wind power and solar because it's more expensive than coal and gas. What's ridiculous is to say those people who say we're economic rationalists now say, no, 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 we need to use government money to build a coal-fired power station or we need to have a gas-fueled economy with the money from the government. That is absolutely ridiculous and hypocritical when even – when even the money is stacking up in favour of the environmental option and you're arguing the other way, that is not only idiocy, that is evil. Like, you know, it's just ridiculous. What's behind that? Is that the, the golden staircase well, that you spoke of? I think there's two factors. So this doctor I'm working on at the moment looks at money in politics, and I think that's definitely one of the factors. You know, that's definitely part of it. There is large donations that come from fossil fuel industries in Australia that definitely have power. It's, it's beyond just the donations. It's the interplay between staffers that move between it. It's the world that is lived in that. That's definitely a huge part of it, I think. I think, secondly, there is an ideological part about it as well, which is that even beyond the money, I, look, I don't think Tony Abbott was 
on the take necessarily. I think he ideologically saw a way of winning by arguing against climate change in the same way that certain newspapers. So you see, the Australian, for instance, has built its audience up with climate denial. And when the fires hit and everyone was like losing their mind about the fires, they actually started trying to publish some articles that were actually quite responsible on the climate front and recognising their role. And the comment section underneath them was amazing because like hundreds of their audience were going nuts, going, what are you doing? What are you writing this bullshit for? It's like they'd created an audience and to try and create an audience that liked their publication or liked their politics or like whatever, they'd use that as a tool and then they couldn't turn back on it. So there is an ideological level that is also exists that is also pushing there. So if you solve the money of it, it's not going to solve the whole problem as well. Speaking of money, like how do we, as voters, they talk about energy prices and, you know, battlers paying energy prices and at the same time we're, what, spending a billion dollars on diesel to help mining companies dig coal out of the ground? It's just like this is the hypocrisy of it, like the utter hypocrisy of the debate. That's the one that is struggling with. Like it's just the ridiculousness of the fact that we literally give a billion dollars to multi-million dollar international coal companies and national coal companies to subsidise their diesel to dig up coal, and we still do that, and we do, and that's been a policy of both parties, major parties for years. Don't come to me and tell me you're being really passionate and making climate change on climate change front while you're still doing that kind of crap. And don't tell me, oh, if only we had the money to deal with this problem. It's just, yeah, there's some very broken moments in our system. I work with some brilliant people on the TV that I make. I'm very lucky. I work with great cameras, great soundies and stuff like that. And, and they, in the off-season of Bachelor and whatever else that I get to work on, they go and do other things. And one of these particular people went to a particular mining site and they stood there at the side of this gigantic machine. They were doing a corporate video for a shareholder thing. And the bloke operating the machine goes, yeah, we call this the money machine, $112,000 every five minutes. <laughs> this machine, it did something. It, I don't know what, it broke rocks yeah. or did something. Yeah. They, they down the maths, it does $112,000 every five minutes. Now you're telling me that that company then goes to our government and goes, fuck man, you know, jobs, growth. Can you help us with the gas money, please? Like, mm. fuck me. Well, th- and this is one of the things that amazes me is that, and this is not a climate thing, but, but a broader thing about our politics, is that in Norway, they're interesting in a way because in some senses they're seen as being really ahead of the curve on climate. You know? They've got over 50% of cars that are purchased through electric. They've got all these kind of amazing things. But that was built off the back of an, they're an oil economy. They dug oil. But they dug oil and the state kind of owned a lot of it and got a lot of the return. So they got a lot of money back to the country and they used that in a positive way to actually move forward in the climate. They have a $1.6 trillion sovereign wealth fund. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What we do in Australia is that we sell off our assets for nothing. We get so little back. When you look at how much tax like Exxon pays or Chevron pays for the gas that they extract in Australia, it's utterly ridiculous. And... I just don't understand why we like you go kind of go if you are going to say to us we have to dig up this gas right the world needs it it's a bridging fuel for solar at the very least take half the goddamn money and invest it in changing all of Australia's solar you know like at least be doing something positive with it rather than 
what we do, which is we give it to really cheaply, we accept them not paying tax, we don't make the benefits from it. It's just that argument about jobs, and it's a really hard one for a politician to argue back against, and I kind of see it happen constantly. You know, All you need is a company to say, oh, but there won't be the jobs. And what, we give everything away for free, basically? You know, that's it's bullshit. How do these other nations do it? How come Norway does it differently? How come oil states do it differently? Yeah, I like to think of the idea of just trying to talk about like you're investing in a product that is at the end of its life cycle. Like do you really want to put, like you've heard that Apple are working on a touchscreen, do you really want to put your retirement <laughs> into Nokia right now? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Probably no, not. Yeah, yeah. All right. Exactly. And it's funny because 10 years ago you were saying, well, if there's not the private funds to go into it, then it must be, you know, it can't be economic. And now you're going, oh, we need public funds to prop up gas and coal? You're kidding me. It's like a double bonus, double bonus again. We're using your public money, so we're taking away from schools and other things, but on the upside, we're also ruining the environment in the future. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> it is easy to to see the cynical joke there. But if we're going to get out of this, we have to en enroll people in it. I know that you are in the business of changing people's minds while making them laugh at the same time. Do you find it a fine line of like, I don't want to make people feel like I'm making fun of them because if I make fun of them, then I've lost them and that's one more person that isn't going to take action? Yeah, totally. I mean, I don't, in those, you know, in more ways than five planet I am that I don't make fun of most people. You know, I do think that probably chasing Dan Andrews with a giant plastic ball covered in plastic bags may not actually be the best. You know, if I was a political campaigner rather than an entertainer, I probably wouldn't use that approach. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Look, it, it occasionally can backfire, I think, yeah. We talked about personal changes that we can make in our own homes, and I was thinking about this the other day. The southwestern corner of Australia, which is uh, south of Perth, is now the most affected part of the planet by global warming. It has uh, received a 20% decline in rainfall in the last 40 years. And so we have the honour, Australia, we have the, the most affected part of the planet by global warming. So the point where the farmers there can no longer run livestock, they've shifted to crops for now. But it did make me start thinking about, all right, we're really going to have to look at, at food supply and we're going to have to look at food security. Did you explore that on a personal front when it came to Fight for Planet A? Well, it's interesting because we looked at food. We didn't look at food security as much as we looked at the footprint of food. And this is one of these areas where I'm still a little bit behind because I am not a vegetarian or vegan, as I know you are. And it's interesting because in the show, we looked at it and went, well, veganism and vegetarianism has the lowest carbon footprint. It's the best thing from a climate perspective, and it has a lot of environmental benefits. But I also looked at the fact that that message has been out there for years, and there's been very little change in the actual numbers of people taking that up. So again, it was going, well, are there other changes you can make within your diet that will actually reduce your carbon footprint? So for instance, you know, chicken has a third of the carbon footprint of beef, for instance. And part of that was also just about communicating what it is about beef, why it is that beef and lamb have such a big carbon footprint. And there, there are some great possible scientific solutions to that that have been experimented on in Australia, such as you know seaweed and that kind of thing. So we might find solutions that way. But I guess it was just about going, look, I want to communicate solutions for those who 
will become vegans or vegetarians, but also for those who won't and say, can you actually make a difference there? Look, I've got a, yes, you identified that that's the way I eat, but my, my wife's Fijian, which is the technical opposite of, of vegan. <laughs> it, it, it has, if it has a mother and casts a shadow, she will cook it and eat it. And that's, you know, what other people put in their mouth is completely up to them and does not bother me whatsoever. But I'm of the firm belief, Craig, that you just can't let perfect be the enemy of good when it comes to these things. I am so much the same. And, and one of the things that I think, it's really interesting. It's amazing how many people kind of will apologise to me for things. They come up to me, oh, sorry, oh, sorry, I got that, or sorry, I did that, or sorry, I did this. And I'm like, don't apologise to me. I like... I am so not perfect. The whole point of these shows is to go, look, I'm not perfect with these things, but what are the things we can do? And it's about celebrating the changes you can make, you know. I would say I am really good on energy, pretty good on transport. I've got a few things in the way. Like I definitely I, I don't have a driveway. I can't even charge an electric car, let alone afford an electric car in Australia. But food, I'm you know, halfway there, I think, you know, in terms of what I do. So I try to eat a lot more vegetables, vegetarian. You know, it's about doing what you can and finding those things. And different people have – what I loved about the Fight for Planet A show was, you know, we had households that were wealthy, households that were renting, households that were this, that, and a different thing. And that everyone found different solutions. But all in all, that impact was nearly cut by half their carbon footprint. In a period of like three months with an ABC budget, which meant we gave them sweet – Fuck all. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that that was interesting. As much as I love watching Elon Musk stand there in his sunglasses tweeting while he watches his rockets take off, <laughs> the reality that we'll get to escape is a fucking fantasy, man. Like, it's not going to – we are here. We are all here. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not keen on escaping. I quite like it's no, an I love amazing it here. planet. <laughs> I really here. love it here. And I – Well, I've got an investment property on Mars just in case. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I, I live in Sydney, which is forecast in, in 20 years we'll experience uh, 33, I think, 48-degree-plus days every summer. Mm. So we are, we're looking at um, renovating a house at the moment. We're, we're trying to build to passive standard. We're, you know, I've told the architect, mm. I'm like, don't build it for the now. Build it for 48-degree days because that's what Sydney summer is going to be. And I'm not going to lie, Craig, when I, our baby's like one and a half years old and when, when he was born, I did – hold him in my arms and go, what the fuck have I done bringing mm-hmm. you into this world? You've got kids that are, I've got a teenager as well. You've got teenagers. When you look at them, do you worry? Do you see possibility? Oh, look, I see great possibility. And it's interesting because my main motivation in climate is, is partly my kids, but in actual fact, I don't think they're the ones that are going to be the worst affected by, it. you know, like, even people living in Australia are not going to be the worst affected. We, Australia's going to be hit the hardest, but because we're a wealthy country, there are poor countries that are going to be absolutely slammed by this and you just kind of – that are already living well below the poverty line and struggling so hard and you kind of – you're going to make it so they can't grow foods. We're going to have this massive impact and that's, that's going to lead to them wanting to travel to different places. It's going to lead to more of a refugee problem. It's going to lead to more war problems and it's about that overall world that we're going to live in. It's, you know, it has massive flow-on effects that are deeply worrying. And it's interesting you say the Sydney example. Now, Matthew England, who's a climate scientist at UNSW, years ago he said to people, the thing I worry about with climate is that you don't realise is that people in Australia are going to start dreading summer 
right now we look at summer and say, oh, I can't wait for summer. It's going to be this, oh, no, summer's coming. And, and I start to see that happening now. I just, you start to see people going, oh, God, it's so hot. It's so terrible. You know, like, you know, and then you have the fire season on top of that. And you know, oh, God, am I going to lose my farm? Am I going to lose my property during this period? I think that dread is starting to creep in there. I mean, you know. A beautiful Sydney summer day is still incredible, but you know I think we're starting to have a slight changed, you know, attitude to summer. Yeah, and we can't all move to Tasmania. That just isn't the. There's no room. <laughs> <laughs> we just we just can't. So what what when your kids ask you, what do you tell them? Look, as I said, I, at its core, I'm kind of hopeful that we have the solutions now to make the changes, and it's actually why. You know, we're doing a climate show, I felt initially I was like, well, why am I doing this? I'm not a scientist. But in actual fact, at the moment, I feel like the scientists and the engineers have kind of answered the problem. They've told us the problem is there and they've given us a lot of solutions. The actual problem is at the politics and society level. And that's the thing I'm actually interested in and where I've spent my life focusing on a bit more. And that's why I'm doing the show, because that's where it's fucking up. That's where we're not solving it. So... I'm positive that we can make the change, but also I'm very wary. Anyone who has been across this issue for more than 10 years in Australia has still got a kind of bruise right here on their forehead from smashing their head against the wall. So I don't know. What do I tell them? I don't know. I just tell them to be involved and care about it because that makes a difference. Does it make you feel better being involved and caring about it? Um, yeah, I guess so. Does it make the pain of the bruise less painful? <laughs> it, it probably does a bit like i i really do little changes in kind of i try and assess my carbon footprint every year or so and seeing that changes i've made have made a difference and that i really like that you know, it's kind of it doesn't solve the problem overall i'm not kidding myself about that but you know kind of going okay we can make a difference we can do this i think it's important to do those things as well as still pushing for change at a broader level because, yeah, I mean, obviously, government can do so much more. My yeah. God, it's frustrating. It's oh, so much God. frustrating. It's so frustrating to see that people have the tools of change in their hands yeah. and not being able to do it. But also in the defence, like, it does require – population do actually allow governments to make change. And I think that, you know, that is happening more and more. It's interesting that you even see nowadays the fact that Angus Taylor feels the need to justify – a gas-fueled recovery, firstly, partly by jobs, but also because he says, well, well it's a necessary thing to complement renewable energy. It makes me go, okay, the debate is changing. The fact that you need to say that means the pressures are changing, so we just need to keep that up. Look, we figured out a way to not smoke cigarettes around children, <laughs> which at the time was, in my lifetime, in my lifetime yeah. it was a great idea. And here we are now, and yeah. some, someone would look at you aghast if you were to do it. I'm sure we'll figure this out. But I love the path that you've gone. I love the that you've gone through the the, the waste issues. Like, that's well, not really a thing. And then oh, the climate issues. Like, it's not really. It's the politics issue. And I love that. <laughs> I love that you've you've found your way there. And um, look, if you ever start exploring sortition, please, you know. <laughs> I'm fascinated in that. Uh, I'll come to you. Oh, there's people I can introduce you to, but I think it's incredible. I think citizen juries are, are brilliant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was seeing this in great, interesting, what's it called, New Democracy. Yeah, those Luka cats. Yeah. And that. It is a really interesting thing. It's it's an issue I'm not sure we're going to be able to get 
seem to into this documentary just because it's kind of like the next step along. Oh, okay. But it is really fascinating, the stuff that's been done. And I saw it in France. Yeah. They kind of use citizen juries to deal with climate. Yeah. And getting people actively involved in that is, is um, has led to some more interesting solutions. And and this is where, I, you know, because you talk about taking money out of politics and taking the golden staircase out. And what I love about it is here in Australia, we actually have the Senate has the power to delegate to a third party and we have a spare old parliament house where they could live. Like it's all there. You know, we could mm, do it tomorrow mm. if they decided, but it would be an interesting experiment. Maybe I'll go pitch the ABC on that one so we can run in parallel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You take Monday yeah, nights, yeah, I'll take should. Tuesdays. <laughs> you do that. <laughs> Mate, I'm, I'm so grateful that I got a chance to talk to you today. I'm, I'm really lucky that you are out in the world doing what you're doing because it's not only helped my life already, uh, you know, from a career point, but like when I went fucking crazy about this stuff, part of my mm. psychosis was nobody else knows or cares. And it's great. It's great to be able to challenge because that noise is still in my brain. Mm-hmm. It's great to be able to challenge that and go, actually, no, like Craig knows, Craig cares. <laughs> Look, the, Craig is really, there are a lot of people out there that are doing some incredible work. Yeah. And by the way, can I thank you too as well? Because when I was writing the Fight for Planet A book and I was looking for an analogy on the Kyoto targets <laughs> and I was like trying to come up with a new one and then I was like, ah, you know what? I'm never going to get better than Osh's one on Q&A. So I just put that in the book instead. Get the fuck out uh, yeah, I did. Yeah, 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 yeah. Your 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 analogy was so good. I was like, I'm not going to do better than this. But was it you like us using the Kyoto credits is like saying to your new wife, I did heaps of dishes in the last marriage, marriage so I don't have to do any now. See, that's great. I mean, you can't do it. You can't get better on that. So that but you there. got it. But that's, I know it sounded like I made it up on the spot, but before I went on Q&A, man, you don't bring a knife to a gunfight. I spent like two, Hamish called me and I had like eight days or something to get ready for it. I wore every day. I read so much. It was terrifying, the sure. kind of shit that I had to read. You know, I, I was looking into some reports that, you know, you've seen them. It's fucking grim. Yeah. It's terrifying. It's, you're weak. Yeah. You talked about, you know, like 15 million people in Bangladesh live half a metre above the high tide mark. I mean, what the fuck? Yeah, it's yeah, horrifying exactly. shit. Then how am I going to possibly get that into... So, yeah, you know what writing yeah. is like and so... I was really lucky that when the lady from the business council opened up with it, I'm like, oh, cool, I get to say the line that I wrote. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the, the thing I love also on that Kyoto one that's even funnier that no one ever talks about is that when we set the targets for Kyoto, right, because, you know, we always brag, but we made Kyoto. We made Kyoto. We set the targets and we were one of the few nations that set a target so we could increase our emissions. So it's like me going, hey, I'm going to do this weight loss thing, right? My weight loss target is I'm going to put on five kilos. And then being all like, I made my weight loss target. I'm a genius. That's what literally Australia is. We're like, there you go. We are just, oh, God. Anyway. Mate, you're great. Thank you so much. Whatever I can do to help you, please don't ever hesitate. Okay. And I can't wait to talk to you about the um, political show when it comes out. That's going to yeah, be awesome. Yeah, no, well, I, I'm not, I'm directing it. So Christian Van Vuren from the Bondi Hips. Oh, my God, he's amazing. So it's great. He's great. He's lovely. He's, he's great amazing. Guy. And also, thank you for uh, lending me Jody and Toby. Ah, yes, yes, yes. Two of the great people in television to work with. I worked on a documentary, which will air later in the year. I worked with people that you made Fight for Planet A with, Jody the producer and Toby the, the shooter. And whenever we'd go to a new interview or whatever, and people, because we were talking about quite a heavy subject, people would be like, oh, mm. I don't know. I was like, oh, no, these guys made Fight for Planet A. And they go, oh, really? 
Oh, <laughs> these guys make Born and Waste. Oh, oh, all right. And they would boom like that. It was the best yeah, calling great. card. It would soft, and I had the easiest interview <laughs> after that. So thank you for yeah. that as well. <laughs> no, no, my my pleasure. They are absolute champions. All right, legend. Have a great time with your family. Cool, I'll, mate, I'll talk to you later. Uh, you don't get any royalties in the book, though. I know it's fine. <laughs> Even though it's, it's, I get to live on a planet that I can breathe on, that's enough for me. <laughs> That is Craig Rucastle. The book is called Fight for Planet A. It's the book of the TV show. Get amongst it. A brilliant book. And um, share this episode with someone that you feel needs to hear it. That would be another way, a great way that you could support Craig. You can find him on Twitter, Craig Rucastle, C-R-A-I-G-R-E-U-C-A-S-S-E-L. He's also on Instagram, C Rucastle, C-R-E-U-C-A-S-S-E-L. Oh, shit, he also made Big Weather and How to Survive It. God, he's done so much. He's done so much stuff. Bloody hell. He's a very clever man. He's a very, very clever man. I forgot that other show. There's a lot of other shows. Okay, thanks for being here. Thanks for being a part of the show. If you need anything, you can get in touch with me. I am email at gmail.com, and I'd love to hear from you. Take care of yourselves. Look after everything. I'll see you on Friday. Until we speak then, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. 